Your passage this morning is going to be from the book of Isaiah chapter 9 as we read verses 1 through 7. Now I would just remind you that this morning's text is our, the third week of our series, uh, Looking Forward to a Savior. As we look forward to Christ from the expectant posture of the Old Testament. Uh, if we were in the Old Testament times, and if we had heard about Christ at various points in redemptive history, how would we think of the coming Messiah? And so what we're doing is we're looking at that question from these various texts. And this morning we approach that question from the perspective of Isaiah and those who heard his prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9 of his book. So would you please stand this morning as we read God's word together? <clears throat> Hear now the word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has shown light. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, would you comfort us with the promise of your Messiah today? Whatever our struggles or challenges, would you take the text, send your spirit, and make your word come alive in each of our hearts? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you, uh, have you ever had a time in your life when the bad news came and then more bad news came and the bad news piled on top of the bad news that was already there with the other bad news? Um, I think I've noticed in my life and maybe more so in the lives of other people around me that the old saying, when it rains, it pours, is generally true. Um, or at least it seems to be when we notice it. If you had asked Israel... At this time in its own history, they would definitely tell you that when it rains, it pours. They would tell you that is not a myth. But I think they would also tell you if they were honest about themselves, they would admit that they were usually the cause of the rain. That they were the cause of why the pouring was happening in the first place. And this morning's reading finds Israel living in the aftermath of its own sin. It has rained. It has poured. It was Israel that was responsible for it. 
And consider how, how the bad news builds up in the book of Isaiah for a moment. I, Isaiah in chapter 6, which I think for many of us would be the high point, right? Isaiah sees God high and lifted up in, in, in the train of his robe, fills the temple, and he sees this vision of God. And it leaves him so traumatized because he has encountered the holy God. And for many of us, I think we think of Isaiah 6, and it's a tremendous high point as he sees the angels singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it seems like a high point. But in this calling of Isaiah, he discovers that he has been called to minister to the people of Israel. And the message that he's bringing to the people of Israel is not a sweet message. It actually is a message of bad news. And the message is something like this. God is going to punish you for idolatry and all your other sins. You won't believe the good news when you do hear it. You're going to hear a message of rescue, Israel, and you're not going to believe it. You're going to be impervious to this gospel message. And so you're going to hear and you're not going to understand what you hear. You're going to see the message of the gospel and you're not going to perceive it. Um, Your eyes are going to be blinded and the result of your blindness is going to be death and you are going to be destroyed. And so that promise is made to Isaiah. This is what you're going to proclaim. The, The message gets proclaimed to the people and we see that promise Come alive in chapters 7 and 8 as God describes how he's going to systematically destroy and dismantle the northern kingdom. He's going to use this foreign nation of people who do not fear the Lord, the Assyrians. He's going to use them to do it. He's going to send a wicked nation as his way of judging them. You want to talk about uncertainty. You want to talk about fear. Imagine knowing that that is coming your way. And then a few verses before our passage this morning, we see how Isaiah describes this season, how he describes this situation. He says it is distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, like being thrust into thick darkness. And so here in the context of these nightmarish threats, In the midst of the sort of pronouncements that would give any world leader sleepless nights, God is about to speak words of hope. And so under this hard message weighed upon by promised coming judgment, here we find ourselves this morning in chapter 9. And so as Isaiah begins by setting the scene, he speaks of Israel as walking in darkness. And then in the midst of this darkness... Chapter 9 rises and shines out like a beacon over a dark sea. See, up until this point, it has been bad news, building upon bad news. But God, through Isaiah, pierces that darkness with a desperately needed message. And And the message is God's own answer to the despair of Israel. His message is, there's a child coming. And with these words... God brings something precious to Israel, something that is not easy to find, something that is not cheaply discovered. And that thing that he's going to bring to Israel here is hope. There is a rescue on the way. And the child who's coming isn't coming to take away the punishment that God is bringing. He's he's not coming to so that those other things from chapter seven and eight aren't happening. 
The arrival of this child doesn't negate the punishment Israel is about to experience. And we know from history they will be crushed by the Assyrians. And yet the comfort that he brings is still real because the comfort this child is going to bring transcends the national moment. There is a truth beyond this moment, this time, that brings a peace to God's people regardless what happens in the world. Nations rise and fall. There is death, there is life, but get this, the deliverance is coming either way. Now, I don't know about you, but I need that kind of a message even today. Living in the uncertainty of the world we live in, I need to know that the message of salvation transcends all of the things that we may see on the news and find ourselves worrying about even in our own personal lives. I need to know that kind of Savior. And so because this isn't a passage written for Israel just during the 8th century BC, it is a passage for us too. God has kept this for us. He has preserved it for us. He wants us to hear this message. Because this passage speaks of the coming of this child and the, and the promise that this child's coming would be so magnificent, so important, that it would make all of the bad news seem like nothing at all. And so in the time we have this morning, I want to do something very simple, something very modest. I just want us to think about this child together. What does God tell us about him? How does his message about the child give comfort to a people who are really about to go through the ringer? God gives us at least three things about this child. He tells us about his government. He tells us about his titles. And he tells us about his peace. First, notice how God promises us that this child is going to have government. That's the word that gets used in the text. We see it in two places. In verse 6, he says, the government shall be on his shoulders. And then in verse 7, he revisits this, this idea Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Now, the word government here is it's not talking about political government. He's not talking about the sort of government we think of when we use the word in the English language. What he's talking about here is kingly rule. He's talking about his own rule over the earth, over uh, creation. Um, I think it was Cornelius Van Til. It was either him or Francis Schaeffer who said, there is not one square inch of the universe over which Jesus Christ does not say, mine. And yet, he also doesn't picture an instantaneous government. Right? Think about this. It's a progressive thing. He's picturing for us a child whose government is gradual and it increases and gets bigger. In other words, it's progressive. His, his government is progressive. It starts in one place and it keeps growing. His rule keeps expanding outward. Um, think about this in terms of Jesus, right? When he was born as a baby, he had little or no government. Think about how much government a baby has. A baby can't even self-govern. A baby can't decide where they're born. A baby can't decide the circumstances of their birth. They can't even control their hunger. Babies can't control whether the, where they go to the bathroom. Uh, they have no self-control whatsoever. They are completely at the mercy of their parents. They have no sovereignty, no strength. And this was the case with Jesus. When Jesus was born into this world, he was born as a baby, as an infant, and he was as helpless as any baby you could possibly imagine. And yet the passage says that his government would increase. 
And it says that the increase of his government would have no end. And so his government increases exponentially. And we see that happening even in the life of Jesus. Think of Luke chapter 2 verse 40. It says in the text that the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. That is a picture of his expanding government. He's getting older. He's learning to read. He's learning to control himself. He's learning to understand the world around him and what kind of rule he actually has. And as he grew older, he, he came to self-govern. And, and uh, the, the interesting thing, though, is that he also willingly did not govern other things over which he had the right to govern. He submitted to the governments of the world. He submitted even to unjust rulers. He stood before Pilate, And he accepted the verdict of the magistrate, even though it was unjust. He submitted himself to death, even the death of the cross. And then, of course, we have Philippians 2. And Philippians 2 reminds us that his government continued to increase. What what does it say? It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Do you see his government increasing there? Even there. What does the Apostles' Creed say? The Apostles' Creed says, He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Now, what does the the Creed speak of Jesus having? Authority over the, the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. You see even more so his government increases. And then we see his government increase even more in Acts chapter 2. After he has ascended, the spirit comes down and the Old Testament promises of books like Joel start to come true. People hear the gospel message. They speak in languages that they normally wouldn't be understood in. The people begin to believe and be converted and then they hear the word and then they they take the word home to their families and take the word home to the people that they're from and the gospel begins to be spread all throughout the world throughout the mediterranean into africa into europe into asia even and today that government of jesus increases even more and now you have nations as far off as china where you have one of the largest christian populations in the world And if the information I have is accurate, actually, then if an organized Presbyterian church were to be formed in China, it would be the largest Presbyterian denomination in the world. What are we talking about here? We are talking about the government of Christ. It's his government increasing exponentially throughout the world. And for God, speaking to Isaiah, he wants his people Comforted by that thought, comforted by the rule and government of this child, the idea that this child wouldn't just come, but that he would come to govern and rule and reign as king. The second way God comforts Israel is in the midst of their trouble is with his titles. In verse six, Isaiah calls Jesus by four names, actually, and each of them is meant to bring their own Unique comfort to to Israel. Think of this. The first precious name Isaiah gives to the Messiah is this name. Wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. The most important thing any ruler can have is good advisors. Good advisors who are wise. uh, Good advisors who will tell the truth. 
And what I, when Isaiah calls him a wonderful counselor, he's saying not only is the government on his shoulders, but he has wisdom to pair with that authority. Um, he says all the wisdom of God. Isaiah 11, too, says the spirit of wisdom rests upon him. And so this sort of thing is, is even a, a divine characteristic. In Isaiah 29, the text says this also comes from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. So you have this phrase being used of God himself later in Isaiah, and here it's being applied to Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. The second title Isaiah gives to the Messiah is Mighty God. And he gives the Messiah the title of God himself. Now, I know maybe that seems a little forward. He's already done this earlier in Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14. He called him Emmanuel, God with us. You see, this is very important. Jesus is not just a human teacher alongside of Plato and Socrates and Oprah. Um, He's a wonderful counselor, but he is more than just a wonderful counselor. He is more than just a wise person. He's more than just a philosopher. You know, Isaiah could have just called him God, and that would have been enough comfort for Israel, I think. But he calls him mighty God. And I think he does this in part because Isaiah knows the struggle that Israel will have. And he has an idea of the struggles that all of the Messiah's people will have. And he knows that we need to know, we need to have our own uh, selves solidified by the greatness of our God. We do not just wrestle against flesh and blood, Paul says. We wrestle against very real spiritual forces. And these spiritual forces do seek to destroy us and destroy our souls. We need God. But we really need a mighty God. How will Satan seek to destroy you? He will seek to destroy you at the place where you are weakest. And by the way, that probably means the place you think you are strongest. What is that? I don't know. I don't know where your greatest vulnerability is. But scripture tells us that he will get his foot in the door of your heart any way that he can. And that means that we must lean upon the Lord, of course. But there are practical things that you and I need to do in our lives for that battle. Coming to consistently hear the Bible preached and taught as often as possible is the most practical thing you can do. But Isaiah's comfort here is not that you are strong and you are a great proven fighter against Satan. In fact, if you look at your own track record and you look at your own history, what you will see, if you've been a Christian long enough, is defeat after defeat after defeat in the rearview mirror. Now, you'll see successes too. But the idea that we are powerful, great warriors and that we are spiritual giants is simply not accurate. We are all weaklings and we need a great God. And so the comfort that Isaiah gives is not that you are strong and you are great and you will be great and you're going to get greater. The comfort that you need is knowing that he is the mighty God, that he is mighty. Christian, find your security, find your comfort in him and not in yourself. You are not secure because you are strong. You are secure because you are held by the one who is strong. You are secure because the Messiah is the mighty God. The next title Isaiah gives to the Messiah is Everlasting Father. Now, isn't this interesting? This could be translated Father of Eternity. 
And of course, this isn't naming a person of the Trinity. Isaiah is not laying out the persons of the Trinity here. This passage is not saying that Jesus is the Father God. Uh, within the Trinity, we know that the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father. What Isaiah is saying is that Jesus is the Father of eternity, the Father of everlasting. He's the one who possesses eternity. So what's being used here is a very high title. It's like saying he is the one who possesses eternity. It's a very exalted phrase to use of someone. And what I would suggest to you is this. If you ever wrestle with the question of assurance, if you, if you struggle with your own spiritual state, you may even find that you live with anxiety over the questions that that struggle raises in your own heart. Isn't it a sweet comfort to remember that your own eternal security and your own eternal destiny doesn't rest in your own shaky little butterfingers? Isn't it pleasant to know that you aren't the sovereign one charged with making sure that you drag yourself across the finish line into eternity? This name of Jesus is precious because what is God doing here? He is stealing away from us an opportunity to be anxious or fearful about our own soul and our own destiny. We can trust Christ because he is the father of eternity. We can let these fears about tomorrow and about life rest with him. You see how God... What is he doing in in these these passages? He's drawing our eyes higher, right? This is the highest happiness that you can have. Not only that you can physically live in a land of plenty, but that you actually arrive at the kingdom of God. Now, the final name Isaiah gives Christ, though, is the third piece of comfort that Isaiah gives to Israel. It's our third point this morning. We see his peace. In verse 6, um, among these other titles that he's, he's given, one in particular stands out. He's called the Prince of Peace. It would be one thing if the child was a warrior, a conqueror. But Isaiah says the chief characteristic is of peace. War is not easy to finish. You could think of wars that even our own nation is embroiled in and have been in for decades now. Wars are not easy to finish. They are very easy to start. They can happen at the drop of a hat, at the snap of a finger, at the press of a button. Wars can be sparked by something as simple as an insult or a phone call gone bad. Or a single world leader can die at the hands of a lone individual. Think of Franz Ferdinand of, of Austria, right? One little bullet, a piece of metal no bigger than a child's pinky, sparks the First World War. And the world is filled with war, right? If the costliness of a thing was determined by its scarcity, then how much more rare and costly is peace than war? And we notice this in the first point, that the Messiah's government would increase, right? And yet we see how different Jesus is than the rest of the world. This is so striking, though. Most governments find their increase through war, right? How does... How does Russia expand its borders? It rolls the tanks and guns, goes to war with Ukraine, and it annexes Crimea. Most governments grow this way, through war and through violence and through subterfuge. 
The kingdom of Jesus is the opposite. It is a kingdom that expands and increases through the increase of peace. The the gracious working of the Spirit of God in people's hearts as the gospel is spread. As people hear that message that you will never be good enough. You will never be great enough. You will never earn righteousness in the eyes of God. You will never be good enough because there are always tainted bits to our even our best deeds. And we need a Savior, Jesus Christ, to stand in our place. We need Him to be our rescuer. We need Him to be our perfect sacrifice. And as that message is shared with the world, the gospel increases and the government of Jesus increases, not through war, but through the spread of peace. Then in verse 7, we see not only does His government increase progressively, as we saw already in the first point, but his peace increases progressively. In fact, in fact, it says that there will be no end of the growth of his peace. Scripture says that his rule will spread from one side of the world to the other. This morning in the youth group, we were reading in the book of Zechariah, and we were reading in chapter 9, verse 10 of Zechariah, and it explains this so well. Listen to Zechariah. He says, This is God speaking to Zechariah. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You see, in the end, the peace that God talks about is not a momentary cessation of conflict. It is not a momentary ceasefighter. It doesn't mean that people even stop fighting at all. The peace of God is something that won't be limited to just one nation and one people. It's going to be for all nations. Anyone can have it. See, Israel is surrounded by threats of war on every side. And even in this desperate moment, what does God do? He reminds them of their greatest need for God to come and bring an end to the conflict in their own hearts. This is the kind of peace we see in Romans chapter 5. You hear those words that God speaks through Paul here. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace that this child Isaiah is talking about brings is peace with God. That is the greatest human need. It is your greatest need. It is the source of the greatest conflict in your life that you are not at peace with God. And that's what Isaiah is talking about here. That is what the child is coming to remedy. Now here's the temptation. That, that sounds nice, but something with within us just tends quite the opposite direction. Um, Think about this. Isaiah, Israel is constantly striving to make their own peace. The whole history of Israel is a series of moments where these people are trying to make their own peace with God and they're trying to do it on their own terms. When Israel asked for a king, they thought that would bring peace and unity. We've been in the evenings, we've been looking at the book of 1 Samuel and we've been seeing, watching Israel making their own peace, trying to have a king like all the nations. What do they want? They want to do this, but they want to do it on their own terms. And really what we find out is that the adoption of a king was their own human attempt to bring peace and success to Israel, but it failed 
to bring lasting peace. And it showed Israel that the human effort to secure peace for ourselves is always temporary and it is always short-lived. Human efforts at peace are weak and temporary. They always seem to lead to later conflict. Part of the reason Neville Chamberlain, and I think you hopefully all know who Neville Chamberlain is, but if you don't, he was the Prime Minister of England during World War II. But part of the reason why Neville Chamberlain is so negatively remembered by the history books is because he made peace with Adolf Hitler. And of course, Hitler violated all the promises that he made. He, he tried to weaken England in the process. It was a very human attempt to make peace. And of course, it did not last. And each of us in our own lives, we shouldn't look down on Neville Chamberlain too much because we try it in our own way every day, all the time. When we don't believe the gospel. Because what do we do? We try to have peace with God by denying that we have issues. Maybe we we pretend we're better than we really are. Or we try to have peace by fixing our eyes on ourselves and, and, and focusing on our own effort. Maybe we say things to ourselves like, I know I have peace with God. I go to church. Or maybe we'll say, I know I have peace with God. I try to be a good person. Or we say, I know I have peace with God because I want to make other people happy and I have good intentions in how I live every day. Any answer to the problem that includes personal pronouns like I or me has the wrong focus. The answer to real peace isn't in us. Any answer to peace that that finds its security and source in us is the Neville Chamberlain path of peace. It is frail and it is failing. But unlike the peace that comes by human effort, this child in Isaiah 9 brings lasting peace. Peace that can't be stolen away. Peace that isn't built on a shaky foundation. Think about this. Israel is surrounded on every side by threats. And certainly that is the case in this part of Isaiah. But Jesus tells us in the New Testament that for the remainder of the world, there will be war and rumors of war. War is a part of this sinful order that we live in. It is as normal as air and food and water. Think of all the global conflicts going on as we speak. This is the beauty of the gospel. We can have peace with God, even if we live in a war zone. Because the peace that Jesus gives isn't temporary. It doesn't depend on the rising and falling of nations. It can't be lost once worldly powers begin to clash. The peace that Jesus gives is a peace that transcends all of those things because we know that we have the peace that matters most. In Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. I wonder if you feel anxious or if you feel uncertain. Do you feel like there's just nothing stable around you in the world right now? Whether you're looking at world events, whether you're looking at life events, whether you're looking at health challenges that you feel are threatening to undo everything. I want you to know that as you come to the end of 2019, if you come to it with a sense of fear and a sense of trepidation about the future, You need to know that Isaiah is speaking a message that is relevant to you, even if all those worldly fears come true. This is a message that is relevant to you because it was relevant to a people who felt the same way. It's in times of uncertainty and fear we find ourselves coming again 
another week to hear from God. We, we need to know that he's got something to hold us up. And that's what he has for us here in this passage. He says, he says are you afraid? Don't find your comfort in wealth. Are you, are you afraid? He says, my promise isn't that things you're concerned about won't happen. He says, you need assurance. My promise is that that through your son, you will have peace with me. And it is a peace that cannot be taken away regardless of your circumstances. Don't find comfort in your own man-made shelters. Don't make for yourself fleeting inner peace that doesn't last. Don't try to make your own peace with God just by gritting your teeth and trying to be a better person. All of these things will be failed attempts if they are not done by faith in Christ. And that was always God's plan. This is what we need right now, isn't it? This is what God is telling us this morning, that his peace is real, that his peace is lasting, that his peace is priceless, and that it does not come cheap. It came at the price of his own son. And as a consequence, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. God doesn't promise us that we won't suffer. And he he doesn't promise us that we will escape tribulation. But he does promise us peace through his son, the mighty God, the wonderful counselor, the father of eternity, and the prince of peace. We find that peace by looking to the child. They looked forward to him. We look back to him. We find peace by looking to the child who came to establish David's throne. The son who always will stand in the place of his people. This time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we are so frail. We are easily blown over by the slightest trouble. We are not strong and mighty. We need you to be our mighty God. We need you to be the one who will fight our battles. We need you to be the one who will be our security and hope. Would you grant us that hope this morning? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.